welcome to ICU, a podcast where we advocate that compassion and connection save lives. They also make life pretty cool. I'm your host, Julie Lee. I see you. Let's be friends. Welcome to I See You. This is episode 36, Escaping My Scientology Cult. We have so much to talk about today, and it's really unfortunate that my voice sounds how it does. I hope you can understand me. I'm really happy to be here. I don't know a lot about Scientology. My experience can be summed up with Tom Cruise eating his his wife's placenta. Is that right, Jared? I don't know. Okay, that's all I know about Scientology. So that's what I'm coming to the table with for this episode. Jared's excited to help us understand a little more. I'm going to make this really brief because I'm just as interested as you are. Jared, will you share this week's review with us? The title is Amazing, Authentic, Honest from Scotty Man. This podcast is amazing. Julie is able to be vulnerable in a way that lets the guest be completely open about their story, and also allows me to see people in a whole new light. I found this while traveling for work when I was looking for something encouraging to listen to. As a recovering addict to pornography, it was amazing and refreshing to hear Julie talk to her brother and sister-in-law so openly about pornography and its effects on their lives and how they healed. They were so honest and brave to talk about their struggles. It really helped me in a time of need. I truly think that so many problems in our world would be fixed if we could see each other and connect beyond the surface level. Awesome. Thank you. I have had a lot of feedback about those pornography addiction episodes. So that series is episode 31, 32, and 33. Whether you yourself have struggled or you have a spouse that's struggled or you know someone that's struggled, which is every single person on the planet, I would encourage you. It's uplifting. It's hopeful. It's real honest and it's beautiful. Jared, let's just jump right into the interview. Will you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? I am Jared. I have been married for nearly 21 years. My wife, Anne-Marie, and I are raising seven children. Uh, Six of them are our biological children, and one is a bonus teenage daughter that we got to add to the family a couple years ago. I met my wife at BYU, Brigham Young University, when we were both taking a writing class, and that's kind of been the story of our life together is writing and theater and art and entertainment, things like that. Uh, We traveled a lot, did theater study in England, taught in Japan and Taiwan. So we live now in Utah after a lot of travel and after being in Seattle for a couple of years. I'm a husband and a dad. That's my my main thing in life. I love being a husband and dad. My wildest dream growing up was to have a big, real family with the woman that I felt was my true love. So I work for BYU and I also write novels. I have six novels published and last night just about finished my next novel that'll be published. It'll be out very soon. You talked about how father and... Husband are most important. And I just love that because we're sitting in your office and we're surrounded by all these super cool paraphernalia, hobbies, books, just Mm -hmm. dreams all Mm -hmm. around. I see medals. I see your college degrees. And it's just really cool to me to sit here and have you bring it back to that. I feel the same way. I love doing this podcast more than anything. I love speaking so much. But if my relationships aren't in order with my husband, with my children, if that's not number one, man, do I feel it. And these things no longer feel as meaningful to me. What was it like growing up in the Scientology cults? The one that I was born into was called the Foundation Faith of the Millennium, later called the Foundation Faith of God. Real quick, what is Scientology? Scientology is just it's just some religion thing that believes that there are aliens involved in life and we have past lives and stuff. I was born in Chicago, lived in New York City, lived up and down the East Coast for a while. I wound up in Dallas and Denver, and in about fifth grade, I was sent to Dallas 
finally, for the last place that I lived in the cult, it seems like we moved so much because they just couldn't keep their homes or, or something like that. But the situation growing up when I was young was all the kids actually slept in the same room in Manhattan. There was a redstone building there that we lived in and that the foundation owned or had possession of. And so on one floor, was a, there was a big ballroom and all the kids slept in there. I have strong memories of going to Sunday services there, being led by the cult leaders. There was incense involved and oil and swaying and hand-holding. I remember singing Sweet Chariot of all weird things. Singing low, you know. Uh, Sweet Chariot. That's the one. <laughs> kind of weird. That was kind of my life, just spending my life with all the other cult kids. A lot of us didn't know who our dad was or were told that this one guy was our dad, but found out later in life that, nope, that other guy was our dad. And I don't know why they would do that. Did you know who your mom was? Yes. From what I've gathered, our moms were responsible for caring for us till we were about two or three. And then at that point, we were just put in with the rest of the kids. They called it the kid center, but it, you could call it an orphanage. We weren't being raised by our parents. It was as if they were dead, except for that they weren't. At three, I was moved into that. Spent much of my life until I was about nine thinking that this one guy, who was one of the original British founders of the group, was my dad. And he spoke in a very cool accent. He talked like this right through his nose. He says, if he was from the King of England, right? And I imitated him for a long time. And then my wife met him. She's like, oh my gosh, your imitation is perfect. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if it was a school day, I'd wake up and I'd go to school with these kids. We'd have our weird focus class at the beginning of the day where we did some exercises. We'd sit across from each other and this was the acceptance step. And the person who led it would say, okay, now accept. These are kids sitting across from each other and we would just sit and stare at each other and we were to have no reaction whatsoever. Just stare like this? Just stare. And, and not zone out stare. Stare with total attention and acceptance. On the face of it, that sounds great. You're accepting everything you're seeing. But then they would say, and now do the redirect step. So one person would insult the other one. And then the other would have to say, thank you. I think that you are something nice. So I could be like, I think you're ugly. And you yeah. would have to say, thank you. Thank you. I, I think your perfume today is lovely. And then they would have us do acting practice. And what it all meant was that I became an extremely skilled liar. I could totally and fundamentally school my features, school my expression, even my body language to be totally convincing for any lie that I wanted to tell. And I used that to get away with some stuff in the cult. We were kept away from the outside world fairly well. That said, we had spent the first several years of our lives in public schools until they opened that school in Dallas. So and until fifth grade, you were in a public school? Yeah, but multiple public schools. I, I moved around a lot. And were you instructed not to talk about your cult? We knew that if it came out that we had revealed a lot about our lives, and if the adults in the cult found out, we knew that there would be ramifications of that. We knew that there would be upset from the leaders and the adults. They were very secretive. We also got to read books. I mean, libraries became my salvation. I read every fantasy and science fiction book in the Dallas Public Library. We also got to watch movies. We watched TV. But I lived in a house in Dallas with 16 other kids. And so we had to have a rotation for who could choose what was on TV for the hour or two yeah. that we got to watch that night. And rotation on video games and all the jobs. Almost every time we would cross paths with an adult, they would get us to do something or they would yell at us about something that we had no idea we were doing wrong. It felt like we were the enemy. And so I know I and many of the other kids saw the rest of the adults as enemies. We had to avoid them. We had to make sure that we weren't seen by them at all, get away with as much as we could without getting in trouble. So we were enemy combatants in a way, but also we were totally neglected, really totally abused. Sometimes we would get called in front of the lady who ran the Dallas branch. There was something wrong with her. She seemed to enjoy shouting at kids. So we would be stood in a row in front of her and she would just berate us because she saw one person who hadn't pulled up their socks. 
Wow. Or their hair didn't look like it had been washed properly. Or worse things, but very often it was those things. I spent my life with those kids. They were kind of pseudo-siblings, you could say. We would go to school. We'd spend all day together. We'd make food. We'd clean up after ourselves. We'd go home. And then we would basically be ignored for the rest of the day. Where's your mom? I didn't know it always at the time. She wound up on the headquarters property, becoming essentially the handmaiden of the secretive cult leader who I didn't even know existed until I was 17. I had heard rumors that there was some lady who ran everything secretively. Didn't believe them. I thought that I would know that about the cult I was growing up in. I was wrong. The cult put out kind of to the public face was a man named Gabriel. Very blonde, soft blonde hair and a soft blonde beard. He would cross his legs in a way that made me very uncomfortable. And he would lean forward and say, hello, Jared. How are you today? It's very nice to hear that. It all seemed very false to me, his, his warmness and sincerity. You felt that even as a kid? If you're growing up in an environment where your footing can change at any time, you have to get really good at reading a room. But I got very good at reading moods, reading expressions, so that I could manage it and make sure I didn't have my head torn off, essentially. There was a lot of freedom in many ways, even though we were in this restrictive cult, because we had hours and hours and hours of nobody paying any attention to us or seeming to care about us at all. But then we would have times where, no, no, you can't listen to rock and roll. You get an inspection every morning to make sure you're wearing decent clothes that look right. and You even get your breath smelled to make sure you brush your teeth. Every morning we would have kind of a prayer circle thing where we'd get up, we'd have a song, we'd pray, and somebody would read something usually from the Bible. You were not allowed to speak until that was over. You could be up two hours before that, but you're not allowed to say even a single word. And if you're caught, you're in big trouble. I got a very rich internal life because I spent a lot of time reading. I have a podcast called Tales from a Cult Insider, where I just tell stories about growing up. My first novel is a novelization of my childhood. It's called Beyond the Cabin. And then I wrote my memoir too, finally, but it's not out because I'm trying to get it mass market, traditionally published by cool. a big publisher. My own personal experience consisted of me feeling like, why was my life this way? Because I knew it was weird, but it's all I knew. I knew it was strange and that it wasn't what the world would usually expect for kids, but I still felt like my life was more or less okay, although bizarre and strange, and sometimes it hurt a lot because we would get smacked around sometimes. Then also a lot of freedom to read, to write, to do whatever, to hide in the corner of the garage or in the rafters of the garage, reading, and me wondering why my mother, who I called Magdalene because that was her name, why she would give me away to this cult, and then being confused as to why my own dad would do the same once I found out who he was my dad. Most of you thought you knew who your dad was, but your dad was actually someone else? Yes. Okay. So my mom was married to the British man who talked like this through his nose or something. And that's who you understood as your biological dad? Yeah, because she was married to him when I was born. Okay. Um, and everybody was like, oh, well, then he's right. his son. That's how that works. But uh, it turned out this other guy was my dad. And I found out that when I was around eight because I looked a lot like him and asked him. I said, are you my father? And he got permission from the cult leaders. And so he was able to tell me the story that he was a little ashamed of. My mother was still married to that guy. The truth is in the cult, that was the norm. People would just trade partners. Not like really terrible and promiscuous, but they would change partners. Relationships were not static or long-term necessarily. But then my dad married this other woman in the cult. And when I was 11, they had a baby. Man, they fought hard to stay together as an actual family. Twice the cult succeeded in getting my sister away from them to Denver as a kind of halfway point to try to get her to Dallas because that's where all the kids were supposed to be. But my dad and his wife were not happy about that. And so they went and got her. And then they were kicked out because they decided to stay with their family, which all things considered, I thought was wonderful of them. And I thought it was... It was cool that they got out. But it's important to, to stress that, yes, I had a mother, but I had no relationship with her because at the age of three, I stopped spending real time with her. I saw her once or twice a year from age three on to 17. 
Same with my dad after I found out who he was. And even the guy who I thought was my dad, I never spent any time with him. We didn't have parents. That was the fundamental situation was no parents. And that's very Scientology. Scientology really wants the kids to be completely divorced from parents, have no familial bond. And that was the case for us. Somebody who I could turn to. We didn't have that. Most of us. Some of the kids, I believe, did because they ended up living in the same branch as their biological parents who were still together. I've seen some of those relationships be stronger today after the cult is, is gone. But during your experience, before you escaped the cult, as far as people showing you compassion, connecting with you that made it more survivable, that really didn't exist. You kind of just had the other kids. Yeah, very rare. I was a loner. Very much so. Even um, within the cult. Even within the cult. I was a loner. A lot of it was because I found myself full of things that I didn't understand, feelings I didn't know how to express. I was always feeling stuff. Constant anger, bitterness, grief, loneliness. Sure that there was something very broken about me for a variety of reasons. One, because I'd been given up, essentially, in my mind. Others, because I was struggling with my own demons and my own challenges already at the age of 11 and 12. So I was in my own head and was scared, scared to death of people seeing the deep inside true me because I thought that they would find me revolting and gross or just too much because I was always feeling something really strong. I'd get really excited about things. I would turn people off. That taught me to be really careful about how excited to get about things. Intermittently, there was some compassion from adults. There's this wonderful woman named Joanna who would ask me for a hug every few months, which was nice. But every few months for a hug is a little, it's a little small, but it was nice and it really stood out. There was a great woman named Joan as well, who was the mother of some of my better friends growing up. She was a firm adherent to the cult, but she just seemed genuine and sweet to us. You know, some of the adults could be friendly and laugh with you and work with you, but it always felt like, oh, there's a truce at this point. We still have to be careful. That's how I always felt. Uneven footing. Unsure of where I stood. How did you escape? What happened was Dallas became very established branch for this cult. So did a couple of other branches. They became a full-on established branch. And the cult had turned itself on a ministry level to uh, becoming animal rescue people. This giant ranch that they had bought, they had bought it with the purpose of doing major animal rescue work. Rescue rehabilitation and tried to adopt pets out. They were doing really good work. And we kids were helping them a lot. I scooped more than two tons of dog poo in my life. Built a lot of dog run and cat runs. I learned how to do siding, drywall, a mudding roofing, building of things like dog houses. We dug so many miles of trenches in, in our lives. It's astonishing. For five summers, we were shipped out there and lived in tent cities for two months. That's an important part of my getting out. They still owned this ranch in Arizona that they were trying to get rid of so that they could turn around any money off that and help pay for things at the Animal Society Sanctuary that they had in Southern Utah. As soon after I turned 17, one of my compatriots, he was kicked out of the Dallas branch and sent to the ranch in Arizona for work because he had been a troublemaker and had gotten caught. And I was like, wait a minute. He is no longer under the thumb of the crazy lady here or any of these people. I wasn't under anybody's thumb necessarily because I had been exercising and boxing and working out for uh, four years. I'd uh, been a practicing Buddhist, actually, privately for four years at that point uh -huh. to get control of a terrible temper that I'd been building. So I was in total control of me. And I was also stronger than any of the people there. So cool. So anybody who could who, who wanted to do their physical violence upon me, they would have met uh, an unyielding Jared. And a pretty happy to fight Jared, honestly. Yeah. Luckily, nobody did. That would have been a problem for me. But having the ability to totally control my emotions, control the way I, I interacted with people was helpful. So when I saw that Mark had been kicked out to this ranch in Arizona, I thought, well, me too. 
at least I'd be away from her and it'd be so easy for me to just leave from there. Right. I decided I would cause trouble and started calling out adults in public. So the evenings were always filled with the adults who'd been out fundraising on the streets and, and in airports and stuff, bringing back all their money and counting it on the table. And sometimes I'd go down and I'd talk to a couple of them because I felt I could trust them sort of. In that setting of all these people counting their money, I would sometimes get an adult's attention and tell them I was displeased with something that they'd done and just make them really mad. I was just standing there laughing internally with a very crappy frustrating smile, right? These people were intent on control of us and of every situation in their lives. And here was Jared acting totally out of control, but in control himself. So that just goaded them and I would make them lose the temper and flip right out. One time I even heard Jason, the co-leader of the Dallas branch, who's a British man, screaming bloody murder across the house that some of the people lived in. So I went and joined them. And he was bent over screaming at one of the younger kids, a girl. He was a big man and he was one of the more violent ones. He didn't like constantly beat people, but he would be happy to give a smack or a slap or a spank. So I stood in the room until he noticed me. He told me to get out and I said, no, no. And he kept yelling at her until he petered off. I got uncomfortable and stopped. And that was delightful for me because I was like, yeah, notice me. I'm going to make you stop that. Yeah. And so I heard with about a week's warning that I was going to also be sent to Faith Canyon, which was the name of the ranch. Good job, which is what you were hoping for. Yeah, I was hoping for, for it. That's what you So I doing. packed all my things in boxes. As soon as I heard that, I'd been gathering boxes under my bed. Packed them all in about 10 boxes or so. Labeled them with big marker. This is Jared. Send when he calls. And stuffed them in the back of the closet. And I hid them behind some clothes. And went. My intention was I'd stay there for a month or two. And then I would just leave. Hitchhike somewhere. Didn't know where. Just over a month into it, the cult folded. There was a giant walkout started by Dallas because the crazy woman had been treating the adults terribly too. Almost all of them just said, you know what the heck with this? And they left. And then several others walked out as well. And there may have been other things, forces at play there that made those walkouts happen, but at least half of the cult adherents just walked out. That was really helpful because there was no more Dallas branch for me to go back to. I got a call from my mother. Maybe she was trying to convince me to stay, but she said, okay, so all the branches have been closed and everybody's going to be here at Angel Canyon, which is what they called the giant ranch canyon that they bought in Southern Utah. All the kids are going to come in here. They'll stay in this one house called the Pueblo. I guess if you want to, you could move in with your dad, who had, of course, as I mentioned, left and kind of pushed out and moved into the town of Kanab, which is only a few miles away from where this cult was. So you can move in with him. He said it'd be okay, but... I mean, all the other kids are going to move into this house here. And I said, well, give me a day or two to think about that, just to spare her feelings. Because I knew that she wanted me to stay, even though I had no real relationship with her. So to spare her feelings, I gave her a day or two. And then I called again and said, you know what? I'm going to move in with him. And she was very disappointed, of course, because I was leaving the cult that she'd spent her life in, devoted all that she had to, even inheritances to probably. Two months after leaving Dallas, I wound up on my dad's living room floor. God was very good about opening the door and saying, no, you need to be here. The cult is no longer a cult. Many people, if you're listening to this, may have put a couple of things together and noticed that this is Best Friends Animal Society, which is a giant, wonderful organization in Southern Utah, which does wonderful things with animals, animal rescue and adoption and rehabilitation. They're pretty famous. I love them. I'm glad for what they're doing. They used to be a cult. They're not anymore, but they used to be a cult. And I grew up in it. I built that. Is it something that they try to hide at all? Are they pretty open about it? That, yeah, this used to be a cult? They're not very happy about details coming out about their past, but they have accepted that they used to be a different kind of a group. My story needs to be told, and the kids, I wish that all of them would tell their stories, because when you spend your whole life being erased or being ignored, in the official story of Best Friends, we are erased. It's not good for any reason. So I am delighted to tell my story as much as I can and learn more about myself. That's a demon in my head that I run into a lot. When is it okay to tell your story when it overlaps with other people's stories and their pain? I have run into that. 
and skirting that line yeah. of when your story, which for me was killing me from the inside out, I needed to be able to voice and to understand and process. Right. But there are parts of my story that overlap with other people's story who yeah. may not feel as comfortable sharing their story. Do you have any thoughts on that? That's been a big concern for me. Uh, number one is I graduated from high school in Kanab High School. And because of my grades, I spoke at our graduation and told an innocuous story about my childhood. A jokey, funny story. Most people laughed. But there were people from the cult there because I was one of their kids. And some of the other kids were graduating as well. And they got really mad at the joke that I made. And I was blacklisted, which is a pretty Scientology thing to do. I wasn't allowed to go back up there for a year or two. I had friends up there still, but I wasn't allowed up. That burned me on being public about my past for a long time. I would tell co-workers for many years about the way I grew up. I'd tell friends. I'd tell church members uh, who asked. I started speaking a little bit to small youth groups about it to tell stories about how we're never too far away from Heavenly Father. We're always within reach of Him. But I was very careful about the way I was telling it to the world. But I realized that I was being careful because I was afraid and I had to understand what that fear was. And I found that the fear was that I, I would tell it wrong or I wouldn't do it justice or my version of the story was inaccurate. Oh, those totally. Are, I deal with that demon all the time. None of those are good reasons to it not feels tell like your story. It feels like your story changes over time. Yeah. You, you, you can't yourself. remember it, right? Yep. You gaslight yourself. Other people gaslight you. And then there's times when I'm like, I don't even know what that memory really was. What yeah. if one day I realized it was completely different? Exactly. Scary. And I, found things that I made up in my brain to deal with some situation or to, I don't know, handle some idea or something that I'd seen. And the only reason I've been able to rebuild and understand, no, that's not real, was because of the other kids. Saying, so, I was there, that was No, there. that's not right. So that's been really good. But Humbling. I, I, yeah, and a little worrying, honestly. None of those are good reasons to not tell your story. Fear of not telling it right. Fear of what other people will think. The only good reason I've ever found to not tell my own story now is if it will hurt someone. And so if somebody might be hurt by a detail or by an anecdote I'll share, I won't be specific about them. But I'm going to keep telling my story. It's an important part of who I am. I mean, I'm a novelist now, and I wrote my memoir. That was an unexpectedly cathartic experience to write that story. It's interesting what your podcast is called because I grew up not being actually seen by anybody, feeling overlooked all the time. If I'm falling into the trap of overlooking myself and my own story, that's a dangerous it's place so to be. It's so damaging. Damaging is the perfect word. It's very bad for us. And it was bad for me. I tell my story. I do not hurt people. I will not hurt people. But people can still choose to be hurt. They can choose to be hurt. That's that's their choice. But I will make sure I'm not doing anything that is intended to hurt in any way. And I will even be careful to avoid unintentional hurt as much as I can. I will not overcorrect to that and victimize the truth of the story that needs to be told. And in many cases, I even use people's real names now. Not out of spite, but the truth is the truth and they're in the truth. They don't deserve me hiding their role in the life that I had. I'm one guy who beat the living tar out of me when I was nine. His name is Cyrus, everybody. I don't want vindication on him, but his name was Cyrus. He got angry and he beat the crap out of me when I was nine. Terrified me. Have there been people in your life that have showed you compassion or connected with you that have made changing your life easier? And maybe we'll get into a little bit of how you changed your life. Yes, there have been people. I left the cult when I was 17, wound up in Kanab, was still very isolated, very much in a shell, very shy. But I got lucky in that one of the other kids I'd grown up with, who I'm still close with, he had moved to Kanab before me. But he'd made some friends and they were playing Dungeons and Dragons together. I got to be kind of adopted by that group. I never asked him, but I think Tim deliberately said, Jared needs something. So I became friends with these alternative weirdos in a small town, Utah. Long, weird hair and listening to things like ministry and industrial and metal music and The Cure. Ooh. They brought me into their circle of friends. Many of them were on a 
deliberate journey back to their own faith. Most of them were being raised members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Not all of them were members, but many of them were. And some of them were not on a journey back. They were just done. They dragged me to a dance or two. I sometimes wish I could be in their heads back in the day, uh, seeing this guy who, by appearance, very normal, but who just wouldn't talk to people much, who was fundamentally bad at socializing. It's awkward. But who could talk to adults like nobody's business. I mean, I could talk to adults, manage adults. I was making friends with my teachers. But with those kids, I had a better time. But with any other kid, I had a rough time talking to them. They were very kind to me still, those friends of mine. And I could list them all because I'm still friends with all of them. Just delightful, sweet, wonderful people sharing the weirdest things about their LDS faith. The weirdest things sometimes. Man, don't tell a guy who came out of a cult who's atheist, which was me, about how we're all going to become gods. Tone it down a little there, Gavin. And the way I got out of my shawl was Byron, a longtime dear friend, got me onto a dance for the second time I went to a dance. The first time I went to a dance, I was asked by a bunch of girls to dance and I turned them all down, which was (laughs) terrible on the face of it. But Byron was just scandalized. All these girls. I was just terrified. But he got me out on the dance floor and got me to let go. And that was the beginning of me getting out of that shell. I moved very quickly. And by the end of my high school year, I dated a lot of girls and had three girlfriends. Made up for last time, right? Yeah, I was in a bit of a hurry. A friend named Nathan Riddle, we got a, th- a summer theater job playing cowboys in a melodramatic production there. We would walk around town in our get-ups and do stunts at each other and draw people into our, our, our show. It was great. We sat on a wall for an hour or two every night after the show, and he would talk and I would talk, and he would listen to me. I shared everything about my life with Nathan, and he testified to me of his own testimony and faith and his belief in God and belief in a happiness plan. And He never invited me to church, but he told me that he thought that I was on a path towards the church. Some of my friends did invite me to church, and I went and thought it was boring, and then I went and... It was a testimony meeting. Can we explain what a testimony meeting is? A testimony meeting in our church. It's the first Sunday of every month. The meeting is opened up for any member of the congregation to go up and share their testimony of Jesus Christ and of their own faith. And my friends went up and bore testimony and meant it. And I'd never seen anybody do religion and mean it because the cultists had not really cared about the cult. They cared about staying out of trouble, and I never saw belief from them. And so I was stunned by my friends, meaning it, actually being sincere about their faith and their religion. My friends made a huge difference. And then after I joined the church, handshakes from kind, upright, warm men made the difference as well. I will never forget the men who would welcome me to the building every day. They would come up and they'd shake my hand firmly and have not a giant grin, but a big warm smile saying, Jared, we are glad you're here. I'm glad to see you today. And then another man would come up and then my bishop would come up and shake my hand and put his hand on my shoulder. He's a giant of of a lumberjack. And he'd say, I'm glad you're here. Having those people see me, love me and give me that handshake, that firm, warm, not too quick handshake made a huge difference in me staying in this thing that I leapt into fairly blindly. So there are people that would call the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints a cult. A lot of my former compatriots do. So I can see Uh how you came from this incredibly structured, a lot of rules society. Mm -hmm. And you choose to join a religion, which you can find all over the internet that this religion is a cult that you and I are both a part of. Talk to me about your thinking with that. I was worried about that perception. So I lived with my dad till I graduated, and then I got out fairly quickly. And then I lived with him again. Just How old were you mission. when you joined the church? Almost 19. I went on a mission just over a year later. And so I lived with my dad a little bit before moving on to my mission. His perception was never very approving. He was shocked when I told him I was going to get baptized. He was confused. It was a Sunday dinner that I went over to eat with them. And he just looked at me. Are you sure? Are you sure? I had a relationship with him, but it wasn't a father to son where I see him as my guy who's supposed to give me good advice and love. It was this man who was my father who I was trying to make a relationship with. We were good friends, and that was about it for at that point. We're much better now. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. And I was as sure about that as anything because of what had happened to get me to, to believe in God. 
that was a scary thing, yes. And then my mom never approved of me joining the church. And then all the kids that I grew up with, when they found out, they're like, why would you do that? Why would you do that? We were all in this thing and now you're in this one? And only in the last few years have I decided I don't really care about that particular perception, honestly. I've had some powerful and important experiences that have brought the gospel into my DNA and my position before God into my DNA. There is no turning back for me. My eyes are open. I see flaws everywhere. I see flawed people running the church and running different policies of the church. I'm able to call some things mistakes sometimes that other people aren't, but I love God and I know that he led me to where I am. Having been able to, at the age of 19, have an experience where I found out that God was real and then I started looking back in my life and see him everywhere protecting me from the worst of what could have happened, guiding me to where I was in that moment so I could join his church. That's an experience I don't turn away from. I will never turn away from it, no matter what people call this church. I don't care if they call it a cult. It's a fair thing to call it a cult sometimes. It's not a cult. At its worst, it's a cult because we get focused on people. On culture and, and people and yeah, weirdness and that cult of, creeps cult in. And personality and garbage like that. But when we focus on Christ-like service and becoming true ministers and disciples of Christ, this is not a cult. This is a light bulb showing some wonderful ways forward. There is truth and light everywhere. There is. In so many churches. Most churches, I think there's truth and light in. I actually got to travel around the world a couple of times for Amazon. I ended up living in a hotel for a while in, in London next to St. Paul's Cathedral over there. Wow. And went just over two years ago and sang the Eucharist in St. Paul's with 200, 300 other people there. That was one of the coolest experiences I've ever had. Very elevating, very transcending. What are some ways to see someone who comes from a rough background? Someone that maybe feels like they are being erased. If we can just look at somebody, look at them and listen to them and not try to fix anything, just try to hear them, that's the biggest and most important step. If we see that there may be a need and we're not sure what that need is, we can just say, what can I do right now? Do you need me to try to fix this? Do you need me to just sit with you? Do you need me to get you something? Do you want a hug? Do you want me to just talk to you? Do you want to listen to some music together or something? Make the situation entirely about the person who needs to be seen. And I love that you said, what do you need right now? And not call me if you need help. That's a, I'm disassociating myself from the situation right now because I'm a little scared. Yeah, I don't know what to do. So I need you to initiate instead of yeah. pulling up your big boy or big girl pants and saying, I'm here. I don't know what to do, but I'm here and I'm willing to be uncomfortable and yes. try for you. We have a fear of things getting complicated, I think, of extra difficult and we feel busy or overly burdened. My friends, there is miracles and joy and blessings in getting things complicated. Our adopted daughter is a giant example of that. In the back of our minds, we probably had a notion of this could get really complicated pretty quick, the way the situation unfolded for her to join our family. But that never became anything that motivated us to not do what we were doing. It was always, this is what she needs. We have to do this because she needs this and we can give it to him. Well, it's a day at a time. You don't look, yeah. you don't bite off everything at once. No. It's, a, it's a decision and a day at a time. But becoming parts of people's lives, being in people's lives. I mean, what a wonderful opportunity that is to see people for who they are, which is full of longing and hopes and yearnings and a desire to be better and be bigger and improve and lengthen their stride. And every so often when you're there and you're actually in someone's life, you find a way to help them. Just across the church parking lot, there's a family with the mom who's passing away. She's, she's five years older than me. Wow. They have a bunch of kids. I love them. And now I love them even more because I've been in their lives a bit. And I want to be in their lives even more. They're people. And they're full of awesome. They're full of difficulty and darkness as well. But they're full of great stuff. I love to feel connected to people. And I think we all long for more connection. And so, yeah, I mean, if you want to see somebody, listen be quiet, maybe ask a question, find out the need, but stay 
Show up. Yeah, show up and allow that connection to build. That's what we get from it is that connection, which enriches us and strengthens us. If there's someone listening that's struggling, what would be your ending message to them? Number one, you are not done. You're a work in progress and you don't have to do it all at once. Number two, you're not alone by any means. If you need anything, and we just said, if you need anything, call me. No, if you need anything, you can email me. (laughs) Google my name and you'll find me. We can even put it in the show notes. Sure. Jared at Jared Garrett. We're here to help. You are surrounded by loved ones, even though you might not think you are. There's so much more good to happen. And I don't want to use trite phrases like this will pass, but guess what? It's going to pass. It's true. Stick with it. Jared, thank you for doing this. Sure. I so appreciate it. Yeah, it was awesome. If you would like to support the podcast and the mission of what I'm doing, just go to icupodcast.com and you can click on support the podcast. You can donate towards the costs of the website. You can also buy podcast apparel and the podcast receives 10 bucks for each item. Also, if you can rate and review, that's always awesome. I appreciate it. I love being able to feature people's reviews on here. You know, I've asked myself a lot, why read a review at the beginning? Is it pat on the back? Is it self-assurance for myself? And I think what I love most about it is I feel like it creates a feeling of community as we hear other people saying, I feel like maybe I'm not alone. I'm hearing some of the same feedback from other people, people that are saying they're addicts, people that are saying their mom's struggling. Men and women, when I first started this, I almost wondered if this would be something that would be targeted specifically towards women who felt like they didn't fit the mold of something. And it's turned into something pretty extraordinary. And I have a lot of male listeners. And I love that because what it comes back to is that we all need compassion. We all need connection. The more isolated we are, we will continue to see suicides rise. We will continue to see addictions. We will continue to see anxiety and depression and self-harm. And if we would like things to change, then we have to do something differently. Thank you for being here. My name is Julie Lee, and I see you. 